Let's pray together again. Father, as we've just been praying in song, so we continue to pray from our hearts to you, the living God, in the name of Jesus Christ. We recognize that there is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved than the name of Jesus. And we've sung many truths this morning concerning who you are, your greatness, your power, your authority. Already we've heard scriptures read to us that remind us that all authority has been given to you as the Son of Man. That every dominion exists under your sovereign rule. That every power that we might find on this planet or even in the far corners of the universe exists because you spoke it into existence and you give it life and sustain it at this very moment. How thankful we are to know that you are the God who really does control all things and that there is no rival of yours in the entire universe that threatens your dominion at this moment. Our world is in turmoil. Many of our lives and households are equally in turmoil. But you have come not simply to establish a dictatorship that would crush us as we are or abuse us or take advantage of us in harmful ways. You have actually come to establish your dominion and authority in our hearts in order that we might be blessed both now and forever. And yet the inclination of our hearts, the default mode because of our sinful natures, is to rebel against that gracious authority and to establish our own. Please forgive us for our defiance. Please forgive us for our willful rebellion. Would you please reveal it to us in this next little while as we open your word and look into it? And as you reveal that defiance and rebellion and convict our hearts of it, we pray that you would lead us to quickly, humbly, sincerely renounce it and yield all to you that we might know the full blessings of your dominion. Oh, Lord Jesus, rule and reign in the heart of every person here today. And we pray that for your glory and for our good. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, my brother-in-law Kent and I sat in the living room of a friend's home talking and enjoying some good food. It was one of those evenings where several families had gathered just for fun. And not only food, but you know, like many gatherings, we had some games lined up that we would play. And there were a number of little children running around. And the oldest child of the host family who I think was four or five at the time. She was not that old, but she came into the room, and it was just my brother-in-law and I, and she began to do something that we knew immediately was not good. 
a potential danger to some of the items there arrayed on that coffee table. And my brother-in-law, Kent, said something like this to her. Claire, you probably shouldn't do that. And with all the disdain and indignation that a five-year-old could, could muster, she looked our way, raised her nose just a little bit, and said in a most unforgettable way, I don't even obey my own daddy. <laughs> and I'll never forget, Kent and I looked at each other, and he just said, whoa. Well, I'm happy to report that Claire has grown to be a really wonderful woman. But in that moment, we both had some doubts. And if her parents were here, they could tell some stories about the ensuing years where they also had some doubts. And uh, although this is not a picture of Claire, that captures not just a little bit of what we saw, but it captures some of that defiant spirit that every one of us is born with. You didn't have to be taught to defend your self-interests in the world. Nobody had to come alongside you and say, I want to give you some life skills, one of which is rebellion. Oh, it was hardwired into your DNA. And it's fascinating to me that in that moment, I mean, you think of even what that little phrase, I don't even obey my own daddy. I mean, there's a lot of complicated thought going on for a five-year-old at that moment, right? I mean, she recognizes that she's been called into account, that the activity she's engaged in is not approved, might even fall or does even fall into the category of disobedience. And yet she immediately steps forward as her own defense attorney and begins to make an argument against the established adult authority in the room saying, I don't operate that way. I'm my own authority. Well, Jesus is encountering some people who really want to remain their own authority. Now, we've just left a portion of Scripture that was so thrilling for us, and I hope that over the past week you were savoring the promises of Jesus where he said, I am telling you the truth. If you pray in faith, without doubt, you could say to a mountain, be removed into the sea, and it would be done for you. And we talked at the end of last week about the urgency of praying big prayers, kingdom-focused prayers. And we're not asking for you know, little things to be remedied, which, by the way, went home in the afternoon. My car started up after about 30 seconds. It's been running like a top since then. <laughs> Thank you for your concern. Several of you reached out with text messages and other things. Even one brother came in this morning and said, how's your car? And I thought, you know, I probably should have put out word that we were great. <laughs> but that's not the kind of thing we're to pray over, is it? We're praying for bigger things, kingdom things, praying for people to be saved, praying for people to be brought into a right relationship with God himself, praying for people to be reconciled in their earthly relationships, all kinds of massive things that Jesus has authorized us to pray for. But now he encounters a different kind of conversation related to authority. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Mark 11, if they're not already there, and we're going to read through a portion of this chapter and then into chapter 12, because these things uh, run together. Now, 
This is day three of the Passover feast. And remember, all of these events are taking place in that temple precinct. Last week, specifically in the court of the Gentiles. This is a scale model. Uh, you, you could, as I noted last week, you could you know, play with your G.I. Joes and Barbie dolls in, in this, and they'd be about, well, maybe not quite to scale, but it, this is a, a reduced uh, scale model of, of what it looked like. And so I just put that up there so you can kind of envision the, the massive place, the, the beauty of the location. And Jesus is coming day by day uh, from uh, uh, over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to the temple precinct to teach. And on this particular day, he encounters a group of, of religious leaders, very powerful people. So let's begin reading the text, Mark eleven twenty seven. And they came again to Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his 12 disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Let me pause right there. The chief priests, scribes, and elders are actually three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin. Giving you a little picture there. And if you can see down in the very right-hand corner uh, of, the, of this screenshot here, there's a, there's a little corner of the temple complex that is devoted to this room where the Sanhedrin would meet. You should think in terms of, of American government that it's like the Supreme Court. Now, it's much bigger than our Supreme Court, but, I mean, these are, are the most powerful people in Israel. And they actually served as a bit of a go-between between the nation of Israel and Rome. And, and to be honest, the Roman rulers are interested in keeping this group happy because if they turn against Rome, they could make things really difficult. But the Sanhedrin recognizes it's to their advantage to keep the nation happy and the people under control and, and following their leadership and to keep Rome happy. There's, there's a lot of financial profit for them to gain through that kind of arrangement. There's also a lot of personal influence and authority, if you will, for them to, be, for them to, to gain and maintain. One author notes that the high priest and his ranking priestly associates part of the Sanhedrin, possessed ultimate authority on the Temple Mount, an authority to which in many respects even, even the Romans deferred. So that's who's asking this question. Now let's read on. Verse 27 again. They came to Jerusalem, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? Verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, it's likely their question goes back to the day before, but I think it's bigger than that. The day before, remember, Jesus had cleared the temple, and he had disrupted the big business, especially during Passover week, where the money had to be changed from the common currency to the approved temple currency, where the appropriate sacrifices had to be purchased and prepared, and Jesus had cleaned the temple of all of that commerce and was seeking to restore it to a house of prayer for all nations, not just Jewish people. 
And so they come inquiring about his authorization to do these things. I think it goes back further than that. And if you think through some of the things, and I'll touch on this in just a moment, that that Jesus has done, and even what Mark has said to establish the kind of authority Jesus had, their question is bigger than just even the day before. A temple episode, however, as one author writes, was only the most recent incident in a history of provocations. It included Jesus' presumption to forgive sins, to accept sinners, to call tax collectors into fellowship, to redefine the Sabbath and lay an axe to the root of the oral tradition. Remember, we we came through some of that in Mark 7 where Jesus contrasts the true teaching and intent of the Scripture with what was religious tradition at that point. They don't view him as the officially sanctioned one who can come into their precinct and disrupt their world in the ways that he's been doing that. The question centers on authority. That word, if you pause for a moment and think with me, that's all about control, isn't it? Who gave you, Jesus, the right to control the temple? What gives you the right to do what you did yesterday, to do any of the things that you've been doing? What gives you the right to teach what you do, to heal as you do, to receive the hosannas of the crowd at the beginning of this holy week, to claim you are the Son of God? What gives you the right, Jesus, to condemn us? You know, it's the same question every single one of us wrestles with day after day after day. Who has the authority? Who has the ultimate control and say so over your life? To this point, Mark has established Christ's authority along several lines. Back in chapter 1, Mark made mention of the fact that Jesus taught with an authority that was uncommon. No one ever taught or preached like Jesus did. In Mark chapter, also in 1, the end, verses 24 through 26, you see Jesus' authority over demons, casting them out, calling them into account, commanding them to go to other regions or areas. And it's, it's clear that even the demonic forces of this world are under his authority. Think of all the healings we've encountered in the Gospel of Mark, even just a few weeks ago, looking at his healing of blind Bartimaeus. All of that demonstrates his authority over disease of every kind, even congenital birth defects. He has authority over the Sabbath to completely reorient it and dismantle some of the man-made traditions that were burdensome to the people on that day of rest. I think the most significant point of authority, though, goes back to chapter 2 and verse 10, where Mark notes for us that Jesus, as the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. Now, there are a lot of well-intentioned people in the world that when we mess up, will come alongside and say, oh, it's okay. Even sometimes when we ask forgiveness, one of another, people would say, I forgive you. But nobody has the power or authority to forgive sins in the way God himself does. And this is part of the reason we believe that Jesus Christ is God, because he says, I forgive your sins. So there's all kinds of meaning loaded into this question. So why are they asking? Because he's been doing these things. What are they asking? Who has given you authority? And and finally, why are they asking? Well, their goal is simply to get Jesus to admit that he doesn't have the proper authority to clear the temple or to preach the message of repentance, which he has been proclaiming, or issue calls uh, to, to people around him to follow him as he has. 
Because they, they want to get that admission, which will allow them to pro probably prosecute some kind of case against him or banish him from the temple of precinct and to capture the, the people, the, the market share, if you will, that they've been losing. They want the power. All of that is loaded into this question, supercharging the moment, if you will. But I pause and I think, honestly, before the Lord, you know what? I'm not very different from these religious rulers sometimes because if truth be told, I want to be in charge of my life too. And I have my moments where, if again, being really honest, if you could hear my thoughts, they'd sound something like this. Jesus, could you step aside? I've got this. Now, it's very unlikely that you'll come on a Sunday morning and hear me stand up and say, you know what, I've been thinking about all this. This is a bunch of nonsense, and I renounce Jesus Christ, and I reject his authority over my life, and then I close up my Bible and walk out of here. That would be tragic. I pray that never happens. But functionally, when we leave this place, many of us live as if we are the authority. As if you can think whatever thoughts you want to think, speak whatever words you want to speak, do whatever things you want to do. We're, we're functionally living our lives as this group was too. Oh, very religious. You weren't going to find a more religious bunch than the Sanhedrin. But at this moment, they're actually coming to a point of crisis, if you will, a crossroads in life where they really need to choose. Some of you are at the same point, wrestling with, does Jesus really have the, light, the right to command my life? to call me into discipleship, to follow him, to surrender all of my possessions, my abilities, my thoughts, my leisure, my personal time to him? Does he? You know, in the same way that Jesus exposes the defiance of this crowd, he's kind to expose our defiance. He never does it just to win the ground He's not, when you were kids, did you ever play the game of uncle? That's what we used to call it. And you'd lock uh, grips with somebody else, you know, palms to palms, fingers, you know, lace between fingers. And the whole point was then to bend their wrists back to the point where they would cry, uncle. And if you could, you know, push them to the ground on their knees and add further humiliation, you know, to, to their uh, acknowledged weakness in that moment, you know, you walk away triumphing. Is that what Jesus wants to do with us? Is he just trying to get you in some kind of holy uncle match and make you cry, uncle? Oh, he's got better plans and purposes than that. But he has to bring you to the place where you openly acknowledge it. And so Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Even by turning this around, he's, he's exercising his authority, isn't he? Answer me. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, I, I'm just underlining some things on the screen to kind of like point out. These are the key words. You just need to be paying attention to them. So he's saying, no, no, I'm going to ask you a question. You answer me. Twice he says that. Answer me. And then he, he puts this out there with two options for them. Was the baptism of John from heaven, which that would be representative of 
from God, is their divine authority in the baptism that John was practicing, and they all know that John had baptized Jesus. That's recorded. We saw that early on in the series in Mark. Jesus is baptized, and, and the Father actually speaks over him. The heavens are opened, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon Jesus, and God the Father speaks, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was a powerful moment. So that's option number one, was John's baptism and Jesus' baptism specifically, was it God-ordained or was it just a man-made thing? So he turns this around and look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. They see these two options clearly. And they are smart enough to recognize if we answer this affirmatively, then the bigger problem for us at this moment, we know exactly where he's trying to lead us right now. Why then did you not believe? Well, that's a cul-de-sac that they don't want to drive into. That's a cul-de-sac of trouble. Because for them to acknowledge that Jesus really is sent from God, it's not even about John the Baptist at that point. To acknowledge that Jesus really is sent from God means that, that their seats of power and, and positions of influence in the Sanhedrin and the monetary, the lucrative commerce that's rolling in through the way they've got the temple worship and structure set up. I mean, it all starts to crumble in a hurry. So option number one is no option for them. But then they also recognize, shall we say, from man... Well, clearly that's going to lead to a trouble with the crowds. The people will rebel. Everybody knows that John the Baptist was sent from God. Nobody's arguing about that. So they recognize they can't openly affirm the truth concerning Jesus or John, but they also don't want to openly express the rebellion of their hearts by rejecting what is plain and simple to everybody in that precinct. And so they they choose door number three, as it were. And they say, we do not know, but I want to come back to this main question. Why then did you not believe him? That's a really important question for us to wrestle with today. For some of you specifically, who really have been seeing evidence of God at work in your life, you, you've seen things even in the Word that you can't fully explain, but you know God is using this living Word to draw you to Himself. You feel some kind of, of, of spiritual work that you've never felt before, but it terrifies you because you also recognize that to follow Jesus in the way that the Gospel of Mark has been explaining to us means a radical alteration of your life. And maybe even you, like these religious rulers, you're afraid of the popular opinion. And you really feel stuck. Well, they actually give a curious answer. In one sense, it, it proves they're disqualified to lead Israel. They answer Jesus, we do not know. Isn't that interesting? That's what I would call in a parallel way to the facade worship that they were engaged in, I would say it's a facade agnosticism. We don't know. Oh, they know. They just don't want to say it. 
may even be a feigned politeness. It's the kind of strategy we employ, as if we have the right to say to Jesus, no thank you. No thank you, I've got this. We would do better to be as honest as five-year-old Claire was on that day. I don't even obey my own daddy. I'm not interested in obeying this God. I actually am in rebellion against him. Many of us do similar things. We evade the truth. We deflect it. Sometimes we feign ignorance. But look at what happens next. Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He doesn't cease all communication with them, but he stops that conversation. And because they're not willing to humble themselves and believe what is apparent to them, he has nothing more to reveal to them at that moment. It's not that there's nothing more to reveal, it's that he won't reveal it. Do you know, even our small responses of faith, of submission, of surrender, of obedience, are key to growing in faith and obedience and surrender. And some of you have stopped the work of God because you've said no at a certain point. And you want to, you want to minimize that and act as if it's no big thing. But my friend, God actually in his kindness wants to grow you beyond that point, but he has nothing else to say to you at this moment until you surrender this point of ground that you're not willing to give up. Jesus doesn't negotiate for parcels of our soul. He wants it all. And again, not because he is a a power-hungry dictator, it's because he is a benevolent king who wants to bless you in every way. So he's not going to cut a deal with you where you intentionally you know, say to him, hey, I'll give you 95% of my entertainment choices, but just let me keep five. He's not interested in hearing something, an offer where you say, you know, if you'll let me retain just a little autonomy, you know, over my marriage, then I'll give you my professional career. As if we're in some kind of spiritual monopoly game hey, trade me Boardwalk and Park Place you know, for Virginia Avenue. He's king. And when the king arrives, you, you bow before him. And you release your control over everything. Jesus then exposes their plot, which actually is the exposure of their souls. This is powerful to me. Look at verse, or chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. Notice how many times... It says that the owner sent a servant, sent a servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, 
and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now, there's a little historical context here that might be helpful in understanding how poignantly this parable would have struck this crowd. Uh, a couple of things just to note. The arrival of the son, as this historian, one historian notes, allowed the tenant farmers to assume that the owner had died and that his sole heir had come to claim his inheritance. Under specified circumstances, an inheritance could be regarded as ownerless property which could be lawfully claimed by anyone the prior right of ownership belonging to the claimant who comes first what's interesting to me too is if you go back to the beginning of the parable when the owner of the vineyard sends that first servants it's with a view of getting from them some of the fruit of the vineyard he's not even coming to take it all he actually recognizes that those who work his piece of property have a share in the blessings and benefits of it. But because they are unwilling to acknowledge his authority, they continue to reject those servants who come repeatedly over many days and months and probably even years, and the evil of their heart is exposed. And verse 8 tells us they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What does this tell us, first of all, about God in His patience and endurance, in His persistent mercy? Because in Israel's history, over the past 400, actually longer than that, 800, 900 years, He had repeatedly sent messengers from His heart to the heart of the people, speaking prophetic words, writing prophetic words, calling them to, to repent of their idolatry, of their moral corruption, of all of that sin, to experience His powerful cleansing and restoration. Hundreds of prophets had come. Many of them had been beaten and many others killed. And at this particular point, God is not sending just another prophet. He's sending His only begotten Son. And we know from the record of Mark's gospel that these people are already planning to kill him. And Jesus has just told a parable that lets them know, I know everything you're up to. What will they do? And so he asked in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then Jesus says, very simply, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What a warning. But even that is the mercy of God. In one sense, he would have the right to just come swiftly, even at this very moment, and say to this whole group uh, of the Sanhedrin, you are wicked and evil, you've rejected, you're culpable, you're responsible, you are done, and just squash them. Take them into eternity. Cast them into hell itself. But even at this late hour, he stands before them with this, with this important question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
Now look at what comes next, because Jesus pushes it even further. Verse 10, he asks them. (laughs) He zings them. We've been in passages like this before. Have you not read the scripture? These are the experts of the Old Testament. They've not only read it, most of them have it memorized. And I'm talking down cold. Word for word, letter for letter. But I think Jesus is using that term which would have been, or that phrase which would have offended them. Have you not read? Of course we've read. But he's asking at a deeper level, isn't he? I'm not saying have you read the words on the page. Have you read with understanding? And then he goes back to Psalm 118, which interestingly enough, that's where the hosannas came from. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in that particular passage, the crowd sees Jesus coming on the back of the donkey and they say, save us now, hosanna. Well, that's Psalm 118, but he's, he's backed up a couple of verses before that. And so this is Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the sto- cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And, and he's confronting them very directly, saying, you are these master builders who supposedly know what it's all about, but you can't even see the cornerstone that God himself has selected to build his entire kingdom upon you are rejecting me at this moment you are rejecting this wonderful work that god has underway that that's what that second portion is about it is the lord's doing it's marvelous in the eyes of those who actually have humble faith and are believing god but for those who are rebellious who are rejecting who are rejecting god it it seems like nothing you know a little less than two months after this very conversation After the resurrection of Christ, after his ascension to heaven, Peter and John will stand before the rulers, elders, scribes. Annas the high priest is named. He's not identified here in Mark's gospel, probably wasn't present for this conversation. But they stand before all the religious power brokers in Jerusalem. And Peter is the the vocal one at that point and preaches a message. And do you know what he does? He goes back to this very passage and says to them, and it's recorded in Acts 4, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says this, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and i think to myself isn't this incredible that even eight nine ten weeks beyond this confrontation that jesus had with these religious rulers there he is again with more messengers saying you actually killed the son of the vineyard owner killed the very son of god i'm going to send another messenger to you i'm going to make this truth plain and call you to believe and i say what a merciful god some of you have known the mercy of god You heard repeatedly through your lifetime, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You heard about his death on the cross, the substitute atonement for you. And you thought to yourself, I'm not asking anybody to atone for my sins. I'm not even sure I'm that bad. And in comparison to a lot of other people on planet Earth, I'm a pretty good person. But God in his kindness just kept persisting, saying, you are sinful. You have broken my law. You are accountable to me. Repent of it and turn in faith to me. And there came a point where you said, you know what? I am a really crummy person. 
And more than that, I'm culpable before God. And if I don't have his mercy and forgiveness, I am destined to condemnation and hell forever. God, have mercy on me and save me. And he did, didn't he? But you know what? Others of you are still at that point trying to say and decide, do I need a savior? Am I really as bad as some of these people say I am? But if you reject Jesus, where else will you find salvation? If you stand in the face of his saving authority, his forgiving authority, where else will you go? Look at verse 12. This is one of the saddest verses in the gospel to me. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. That little word perceived means very simply they know exactly what he means. And then here's the sad part. They left him and went away. They left the only one who has the authority to forgive their sins, to heal their hearts of of the deadly disease of sin, to renew their minds. They leave the one who has the authority over demons and disease of every kind. They leave the one who has the authority to teach and preach the truth, not just to them, but into their souls, where their souls would live and thrive on the living word of God, where by that same teaching, the gates of the kingdom would be open to them, given to them forever. They leave him and went away, went away from the Savior deeper into their unbelief, deeper into their fear of man, went away from their Redeemer into the facade of their religious worship, the facade of their spiritual zeal. They went away from the lover of their souls who had come in the mercy of God the Father to say to them, follow me. This is more than a disagreement about a worldview or religious ideals. This is what I believe Mark would have us to see, and these are are my words, but it's an outrageous rebellion. It's an outrageous defiance. And it's even more outrageous than a five-year-old who stands in her own parents' living room and looks at the adult's who actually are trying to preserve her from personal harm and maybe even a spanking that would follow. And with all the indignation and defiance she could muster in her heart, say, I don't even obey my own daddy. But that's exactly where some of you are today with God in heaven. Oh, dear friend, do not defy this God any longer. Come to him. Surrender your will to him. Submit your heart fully to this king. Stop negotiating the terms of your life or the parcels of your soul. He doesn't want 50% of you today. He wants it all. Call upon him to rescue you from everything that actually holds you captive on this day. Would you bow your heads with me, please? 
Father, in the quietness of this moment. We're gripped by this gospel account. Oh, God, have mercy on us. We see so much of ourselves in the Sanhedrin. We, like they, so often say to you, what authority do you have over my life? Forgive us for clinging to a sense of control. We're deceived in thinking that we are our own authority. Oh, forgive us. In your kindness, would you establish your dominion within us? We step down from the throne of our hearts and kneel before you and say, oh Jesus, be enthroned. The center of our souls, the center of our hearts. Take us as we are. Use us as you want. Do your holy will in us and through us. I pray for those who acknowledge that there's a, a point of, of decision or maybe a question that they ultimately have to work out with you. Would you continue to show your kindness to them? You've already done it because you've sent servants to them who've, who've brought a message from you. So I pray that they would be confident to know that you would be merciful to them with whatever remains in their hearts. Grow us and change us. We just want to be more like you. We want the full blessing of your rule and dominion in our souls, our marriages, with our children, with our parents. We want it to spread through this community that we love until all those who are created in your image to know you are in fact brought to salvation. We could see it. So we're praying for mountains to be moved, some of a personal nature and some of a state or national, international nature. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've said, I'm telling you the truth. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.